let's uh, let's go ahead and get going. Since it's nine thirty and all, might be a good time to get going. Hi, Anelli. How are you? How's your sister? Good. Okay, good. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the uh, the gift that we have in the body of Christ. We thank you for the the um, the gift of your word to shape us, mold us, and grow us into uh, the bride of Christ that is without spot or blemish. And we pray that you continue to work toward that end in us uh, again this morning. Pray for your spirit to be moving in us, growing us, um, conforming us to the image of Christ because of the washing of your word. And as we take up uh, the passage this morning, let Christ be glorified in this Old Testament passage. We thank you that you um, moved in the lives of men and recorded it for us in a book as an example for us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So we, we once again want to submit ourselves to your word and to grow according to your good pleasure. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are looking at uh, Exodus 13, 11 through 22. Exodus 13, 11 through 22. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and of the, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they, may, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Well, here they are. They've been freed. 
they're traveling, and it says they come to the edge of the wilderness. The border of Egypt is in sight. They're seeing freedom. Let's walk in their sandals a little bit. What do you think they're feeling? What do you think is going on? What, are, what, are the, what does the scenery look like right now? Just shoot out some things. There's a little hope. You know, I think when they first started, what I would be thinking is, um, I don't really believe this. We've been here for 130 years. It's not really going to happen. Um, any second, you know, Pharaoh's army is going to come out and take us or whatever. But now they see the border. Maybe there's a little hope. They see the border and they see something else, don't they? What do they see? The wilderness. The wilderness. Okay. There's a pessimistic view. What's, what's the, what, what else are they seeing? A pillar. A fire and cloud. What do you think that is saying to them? What, what kind of impression are they getting from that? <laughs> if I could just, just let me put out this fleece. I just, um, it's pretty obvious God's with them. His presence is there. He's leading them, and they're following. Well, that would be important because people in the back couldn't see Moses. So yeah. they needed to know that somebody was telling the Are you telling me Moses is kind of short guy? Is it? I'm just saying from a moment perspective, he didn't get lost, and I'd like to know that God's telling him where to go. Okay, sure, sure. Um, He's going before them in hostile territory, and it's very open and obvious that he's with them, right? They're still hostile. I, I will tell you, uh, at the beginning of, of the week, when I read through the passages, wrestling through it, I was thinking, you know, this really can, we can get into the active and passive obedience of Christ here. This is the whole thing. Last night I was banging out my notes. Something hit me. Pulling these two passages together that, that I had not really put together um, which happens when you write, and that's why I prefer to write earlier, but anyway. Here's the title that I put down there. He goes before us, and we count the cost to follow. Do you see why that works for this? What's the first thing we read? What are we talking about? I love the way this passage begins, by the way. Do you see the language in verse 11? Does it begin with if? When? When what? How can he say that? Because he's God. Notice the confidence that you can have in the nature of God. He's going to do what he said he's going to do when he brings them into the land of Canaan. When he brings them to the point, well, when he conforms you to the image of Christ. Right? Old and New Testament, there's not a different God here. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it starts out with that confidence you can have in in who He is. When the Lord brings you into the land, He said He would do it, and He's going to finish it. But there's a cost here. What's the cost? And what's the context of this cost? What does it say? What are they to do when they get into the land of Canaan? They're to sacrifice the firstborn animals. I'm glad you clarified. Because that's important. What was going on in the pagan culture around them? 
regarding the firstborn. Absolutely. Um, the, the, um, the language literally in, in verse 12 says, and you shall pass over every firstborn of the womb to Yahweh. Notice the, uh, the play on words there. Why is that important? What is he, what is he pulling, pulling from that? Just as their own firstborn were passed over, they will pass them over to God. Right. That's the cost. Is that a cost? Yes, but not in comparison to their freedom. The cost is worship and obedience, right? Um, why, why uh, and, and you're right, as God passed over the Hebrews during the 10th plague, the Hebrews are now to pass over their firstborn to him. Why? What's the significance of this? What, what, what is, why would he want this? Firstborn of animals, firstborn of, of, uh, of, of, of your, your house, your, your sons. Yes? I think it's, it's kind of an Ebenezer. It's to remind them of what God had done for us. You know, he's, um, I remember from several weeks back, there's, they were to do this every single year mm-hmm. as a remembrance of what God had done. And they get out, and I'm, I'm so quickly to, I forget so quickly what God has done. I'm right. sure they were the same way. Hey, Gabe, there's a double stack of chairs over here. By oh, good. All right. Good to see you, brother. Um, so God's active redemption, and he requires of them this firstborn right of redemption, right? Is that too much to ask? Think of the grace that's involved there. Take your firstborn son, whom you love. We heard that before? Don't put him on the altar, but he's mine. And you're going to redeem him this way. What's represented by that firstborn son in the culture? He's the heir. He's the heir. He gets the majority of the stuff. What else? Does a culture survive without children? What is it again? The family name. The family name goes on. So you're committing to God, the, the, the heir of the stuff, and you're committing to God your future because of this act of redemption. And he sets up the contrast. He killed the firstborn of mankind in Egypt, but he saved, passed over the firstborn of the Israelites in Egypt. Did he have to? Is there something better about the Israelites than the Egyptians? Were they not also fallen in Adam? There's free grace there. And the Egyptians he condemns and judges. And the Israelites he passes over and shows them mercy through redemption of the Passover lamb, uh, promises of sanctification in the unleavened bread uh, feast, and then you have this right of redemption with the firstborn. With so great a salvation, is there anything that is too much for him to require of you? It also seems like if you're just coming into the land and then you're going to sacrifice all the firstborn of all your animals, um, there's a sense of dependence and trust that God will 
still provide more animals that you need right. to live. Right. Um, so there's an act of dependence. It's an act of worship and dependence upon him to, to, to sacrifice those animals. Um, and it's an act of dependence and worship to him to redeem your children. There's mercy there in that he's not requiring them to sacrifice their children. In fact, he's telling them that's evil, don't do it. But this is what we do with the firstborn. This is what we do with your hope. This is what we do with your, your future. By requiring a redemption of the firstborn from God by the sacrifice of a lamb, what's the picture there? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. I'm looking for a $10 phrase. So it begins with uh, S and ends with substitutionary. Uh, substitutionary atonement. We're seeing the lamb is in place of the, what what is deserved for your future on your goods, your future on on, on uh, for the for the nation. God sets up a right to give a picture of what it costs for our freedom, and in contrast that with the, the pagan practice of child sacrifice. The Israelites are not to pass over their firstborn in the fire, but to pass them over. To the Lord, and and He makes this apply to humans and animals. What's with the donkeys? Why why go into this thing with the donkeys? Any thoughts? <laughs> well, I stubbornly looked at this. Um, neither the donkeys or human children will be sacrificed, but rather bought back. Now I'm I'm. I'm seeing some parallels in them. Um, <laughs> the substitution was for donkeys and for firstborn humans. I, the thought here, I, I think, may be that the donkey was really the only unclean domestic animal used by the Hebrews in Egypt. So it wasn't... There's nothing in Leviticus that says take a one-year-old donkey and sacrifice it for your guilt offering. They're, they're just, that's not what they're used for. They're not sacrificial animals. And so, um, although they are to uh, sacrifice the sacrificial animals firstborn, they're to, they're to do that because that's kind of the system. The donkey's not in that, in that uh, mode or, or part of that ritual, those rituals. But they're valuable. Right? Donkey's a helpful thing. They chase away coyotes when you have goats. They're, they're helpful, by the way. If you, um, the, They're good for traveling, uh, for packing, pack mules. Um, and so God graciously allows for the redemption of something that's valuable to his people. I don't... There it is. Seems caring. Seems loving. What's up with that? Seems well thought out. I would think that he's an organized kind of kind of God, and 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 there and there it is. What what uh, what? How are the human firstborn redeemed? Is a mode given? It just says redeem them. Does it say how? Okay, how? Set apart. How's that supposed to happen? Are we given anything? 
It says down in 16 about a mark on your hand and the frontlets between your eyes. <clears throat> okay. Is that how we mark them out, or is that just to remember the law? It doesn't say. It doesn't say how to do it. But we learn later that there is a requirement in Numbers 18.16, which we may get there someday, <laughs> that, uh, that it requires five shekels to redeem the firstborn. Five temple shekels. So money is paid. There's not, um, there's not a lamb given. It's, it's, it's money for your, for your firstborn. Keep that in mind. Uh, all right. Look, look on down further. Do you see the importance that God places on teaching children? This is like the third time we see this phrase, when your children ask you this, say this. What impression you think is made upon a child when he sees this rite of redemption um, going on? And he asks us, well, what are you doing this for? What impression do you think the answer would have upon him? What is he learning by the answer that God is giving them to tell their children? What does he say? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly, not unlike a donkey, refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. What is conveyed by that statement? What does what a kid... If you're wanting to chime in, feel free. You, you, you're smiling. You, you know the answer. Well, I mean, I know how it strikes me. Okay. I think it's beautiful that he's... He uses us in his language... <clears throat> Because the child wasn't there when <clears throat> Passover happened, but he's part of a community, and so he therefore is part of the redeemed because he's part of he's an Israelite. He or she is an Israelite, and the dad is saying again, "Hey, you're part of us. You're with us. You are redeemed as well, even though you weren't born yet. This is part of your identity. You're one of God's people. This is your history. This is your identity." <clears throat> This is who you are. That's why we do this. We act distinctly from the culture because God has been gracious to us. And that's trained in them since children. What does it also convey to the kid about what do we do with our stuff? What do we do with our lives? What is, it, what is being conveyed? Go ahead. Okay, I was going to go a little different. Direction. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. I'll ask that question again later. I was a child and I saw an animal being sacrificed... And my dad explained this is because of our sin. I'd be like, wow, I guess I really didn't realize my sin was so bad that that animal needed to die because of me. And so I'm sure, you know, visually, slitting the throat, watching the blood and the animal die in pain and whatever, mm-hmm. I think that would really, you know, put an impression on me. So there's the weight of <clears throat> death in Adam. Yeah. The weight of sin is shown in this act of this rite of redemption. It's a big deal. Yeah. And and the the statement too is that nobody else is doing that. No other culture is doing this for the same reason that you are. 
because God has been gracious to us in Egypt. When he's killing the firstborn of mankind, he passed over us. Again, it's a, an indicator, a reminder of, of uh, the, the, the Exodus, the Passover uh, event. And they're also getting the witness that, that worship of obedience lived down. Sure. Right sure. Very good. Um, in my notes I have written, God killed the first corn in Egypt, but not of us. He had every right to, but he didn't. Just as much as the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, this right of redemption of the firstborn is to serve as a pointer to the Exodus. The, is the picture clear here? They're required to do this. What's the picture? There's a cost to following this God. But what's the gospel tell us? God pays the cost, right? The, the, the firstborn uh, is a picture of Christ. And so while they're redeeming their firstborn with the shekels, while they're redeeming with uh, the animals, with um, lambs and, and, and those kinds of things, um, God pays the cost on our behalf and redeems us. Through Christ, First Peter one eighteen through nineteen. Just real quickly. I know we've got seven other verses to get through, but let's go through this real quick. First Peter one eighteen through nineteen. Somebody read that for me. And then the next one we'll look at is Hebrews nine two. So somebody else get that one. First, go ahead. Notice the reference he makes. Not with silver or gold, not with shekels, but with the precious blood of Christ, you're redeemed. Notice the comparison. Even greater than what's required here is the blood of Christ. Um, what, what, what is uh, Hebrews 9.2? Who has that one? What I meant to say is two, two, two nine. Got it. We see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay. All right. Yes. Sorry for the confusion. <laughs> um, and we'll we'll talk about this in a little bit, but but is the cost? There's a cost to follow him. There's a cost in redeeming us, and there's a cost of the redeemed to follow, right? Um, but the route that he picks for us to follow doesn't make sense sometimes, and we see that here. Um, first of all, verse 17 through 22, we're going to get through that. Do you, do you see any fear as the Hebrews are leaving? Do you, is there any indication that they're afraid here? Now, what is being conveyed in that? He takes them not through the most direct route, which is war country. 
He doesn't take them that way. He, he normally uh, the, they would have been taken by what's known as the way of the sea, the Philistine, Philistine. How do you want to say that? Way extending it extends from the Nile River across the northern Sinai into the coastal plain of Palestine. But he doesn't take them that way. I, I should get a map schematic. No, it's not going to happen. Um, he doesn't take them that way. He doesn't take them that way. Why not? I mean, he's leading. It says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What does that tell you about God and how he deals with his people? He knows our frame that we are but dust. And he restrains the um, opportunity for unbelief, right? He puts a bar there. He says, well, not yet. They're going to face war, they, but not yet. There's, they haven't matured. Well, he's about to set up a situation that becomes a very um, huge grounding for their belief and trust in him. They're heading where? The Red Sea. There's a contrast here between God's leading them and their desire to go elsewhere. And he's restraining their unbelief by taking them a different route and ultimately will give them an incredible basis for trusting him. We think we know best. There's a way that seems right to a man and leads to death. God's leading another way, a longer way, a more indirect route because what's important to him is belief and trust in him rather than expediency. Um, what, what does it interlead with Moses and Joseph's bones? Seems a little morbid, doesn't it? Let the poor guy rest. What, what's going on there? Promise fulfilled. He made them promise before he died. Don't leave my bones here. So 430 years later, well, maybe 330. I don't know how long Joseph lived. Many centuries later, uh, they're digging up Joseph's coffin. Maybe his embalmed body. I don't know. But at least uh, some some form of him that remains. And they're they're using the donkeys that they've redeemed uh, to carry him to Canaan. And they're looking out at the wilderness with the patriarch Joseph's remains uh, ready to go back home. Ultimately find out that that he is uh, buried in Shechem, which, if you were with us in Genesis, that should ring a bell. But I don't go into it here because it would sidetrack us. More than the two minutes it's taken me to tell you that it... (laughs) So they're looking out at the edge of the wilderness... They can see freedom beyond the border of Egypt. Nothing is in their way because God is going before them and he's leading them graciously, kindly, not giving them an opportunity for unbelief except, um, except the whole Red Sea thing is going to come to a head and that's going to be awesome. All right, how, how, what's going on here? How is he leading them? What do we see? This picture of pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. Why is that important? What do we call those? We see these things. Manifest Manifest presence. I like that one. What's another? What's a ten dollar word? 
Starts with Theo, ends with Phony. Ophony. <laughs> theophany. Um, there's a double theophany going on here. There's a double picture of the presence of God. Yahweh is with his people day and night. And this underscores the all-inclusive nature of his presence with them. What does that contrast against, against what other... Uh, against a, 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 the Egyptian theology, for example? God's sleep at night. Their gods are asleep, and they're on their own at night. Which must have been really difficult at bedtime for kids. <laughs> You're on your own. Anyway, just a thought. <laughs> they had no reason to fear. Yahweh was going before. You want to get a kid to obey? <laughs> Ron's asleep now. He won't. I mean, I mean. Okay, they they had no reason to fear. Yahweh was going before them, and he doesn't take away his presence. He determines the period in which he would appear as fire or cloud. He knows when they need to be cooled. He knows when they need to be warmed. He knows when they need light. He knows when they need shade. He is guiding them, leading them, covering them, protecting them, and there's no fear. The joy of the ever-presence of God with his people. Hebrews 13.5. We'll get, wrap up here in a little bit. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you or forsake you. That's New Testament. God is the same. Old Testament, New Testament is the same God. So, But it comes with a cost. The price of redemption. Um, we want some measure of control over that, don't we? I do this ritual, then I am entitled to your forgiveness. I'm entitled to your mercy. I'm entitled to your grace, which basically undercuts the definition of grace and mercy. But God doesn't give us a way other than total dependence upon Him. If we have the free grace with which He redeemed us, in view I mean if I'm able to earn my salvation I can put limits on what God requires of me can I well you wouldn't have me if I didn't do this but that's not the way he works it's all dependent upon him he does the work start to finish he gives the faith to believe he gives the repentance to be forgiven of sin he gives the gift of Christ on the cross to to make a way for us to be reconciled with him, but we want to pull back and, 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 and be good enough to earn that in some way. I, I'm glad, you know, God, aren't you glad I did my 10% and you took, you know, your, your 90? But if he does it all, is there anything too great for him to require of us? Is it too great to submit to one another? As unto Christ? Is it too great to do good to those who revile you on account of the gospel? Is that too great a requirement? God who gives free grace? Is it too great to live as stewards and wise managers of the money 
and assets he's given you for his purposes rather than live as an owner and use it for your purposes. Is that too great? Is it too great to flee youthful lusts? Is that too great a requirement? Is it too great to be anxious for nothing? Is that too much? Is it too great to love him by doing what he commands? It's not too great. It's a joy. Right? It's a joy. Feel the joy. It's a joy. He's done everything. And part of being a redeemed community is that we live in thankfulness. And he's given us a way to show thankfulness and um, awe and reverence for what he's done. It's not too great a requirement. What else would you have me to do out of my thankfulness for this greatest of mercies? Shouldn't that be our attitude? He redeems us to form us into the image of his son and it wasn't too great for Christ. It shouldn't be too great for us. All right, any questions, any comments on that? It's 10.03. This may be a record. Any comments? Kevin, yes, sir. I think, I think sometimes it's easy for us to, uh, to acclimate to kind of a new lifestyle or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, after you become saved, you kind of go through a honeymoon phase, and it's like, you know, everything is heightened, everything is new and exciting. Right. And then it kind of it kind of fades off, and we kind of, you know, those of us that have been a Christian for a long time, you you feel like a prince sometimes. You feel like, you know, okay, God saved me. You know, I am. You can kind of look down your nose at people that aren't saved, and mm-hmm. they don't get this, or how can they not see this? Or you, you just kind of become acclimated to the thought of that you're a son of God. Mm-hmm. You know, we can call Christ our friend. Or pray to him like that's not a big deal, mm-hmm. you know. But it is a big deal, and that's why we have the gospels because it's a big deal, and it shouldn't just, you know, shouldn't coast. Right. You know. Right. It's a. It, it, when we talk about this a lot, we, you know, we're redeeming our minds through the washing of the word by studying and and and, and working through it. But there's also a redeeming of our emotions. He, he redeems the whole man. And an attitude of thankfulness, an attitude of um, service because of, of, of awe and reverence for God is something that, that's, that's... That takes work. We're not naturally thankful people. We're gripey people. And we'll see that in Israel uh, as we're wandering through the wilderness that they're now excited to see. Suddenly it gets hot and hungry. What do we do then? But God sends quail. It's a wonderful thing. Um, is that baby Christians, um, God protects them for, for a short while from some of the consequences. But then there's a time period where he's like, it's time for you to grow up, and they start facing the consequences. And then they're like, what, did God leave me? Mm. You know, and that's when you got to say, no, it's grow-up time. Yeah. Yeah, there's unfortunately some of that. But it's good, too. I mean, you want to grow. Fire, you know, yeah. Hey, that'd be really cool. 
And, and we want to say, oh yeah, we would believe, we would have no doubt, whatever. Well, if, you know, six Sundays went by like that, I, I, I don't, I, I think sometimes we're, we're too quick to go, if there was a miraculous sign, we would believe more. The author of Hebrews you know, makes that argument. People saw Jesus raise Lazarus mm-hmm. from the dead and still didn't believe. And wanted to kill him because and of it. And wanted to kill him yeah. because of it. So there's, it's not, our faith is not based in the miraculous signs. And, and even though he, he was there guiding and directing them in a visual, physical way, their, their faith still had to be dependent on him. Mm-hmm. And obviously we see that their faith was still tested. Um, and we're, I mean, we're fallen. We're naturally to fall away from God unless we guard against that. Yeah. Thus the need for the means of grace, including um, prayer, word, community, those things, sacraments, ordinances, uh, those things are are part of the means of grace, reminding us of of the mercy that we've had in God and what He's doing in us. Anyone else? Glad you're with us. Appreciate you being here. You're trapped in the back of the room. You can't leave early. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, again for uh, the mercy that you've shown for us in Christ. We're, um, we're hit with a warning um, when, we, when we study the history of the Exodus. And that this same generation that experienced all these signs and will experience the the, the parting of the Red Sea and the traveling into the wilderness, this same generation is the one that died in the wilderness wandering around for 40 years because they did not trust you. It's easy to point the finger at them. But Father, remind us make us very conscious of the fact that our dependence should be on you and not on uh, our own efforts, our own works, our own energy. Um, We need you every hour, as the hymn says. And we ask once again for your spirit to stir up the faith that's in us, restore unto us the joy of our salvation so that we are willingly, happily, putting our hands to the plow, serving you and serving each other as unto Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.